Well, you know, he said nice things about me. I'll have to say nice things about him, too. Um, I hope you do realize how blessed you are with the pastor that you have. He is a real blessing and has been a true friend and a uh, real, uh, just a real help in a lot of, lot of situations. So I, I do hope you, again, appreciate your pastor. So the message that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, um, I, I have to say on the front end, is a message that is, is really uh, for only one group of people. And so if you're not a part of this group of people, this message really isn't for you, but you'll just have to uh, bear with me. But this is a message that is for sinners. And, and so if that doesn't fit you, if that isn't a category that you find yourself in, well, I, you know, I just hope that you'll find something that, that connects uh, with this message for you. But if not, you'll, again, you'll just have to bear with me for a bit. Uh, but for those of us here that do still struggle on occasion with sin, um, this is a message that is for you. And I pray and hope that you will find a word of encouragement uh, here uh, in the Gospel of Mark, which is where we'll be spending uh, a good amount of our time here tonight. And in Mark's record of the resurrection of, of Jesus, uh, he, he includes two very short words, two very short words that, that I believe should bring us tremendous hope as sinners. And, and those two words are, and Peter. And you may wonder why the words and Peter might elicit a hopeful reaction. And if that is your thought as I share those two words, uh, I am happy to enlighten you a little bit about this. Because those two words, I believe, can be quite impactful. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles or click over in your Bible apps to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Now, I will warn you up front, we are going to jump to a couple of other passages uh, this evening, but we are starting out here. We're going to read the first eight verses of Mark, chapter 16. I'll give you a moment to get there. All right, so Mark, chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says this, When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go up and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away this stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you would just pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Father, I just come before you right now, and as we just consider this text, and we consider those two words and Peter and the significance that they are included in the message that was given to these women on, on that Resurrection Sunday morning, we just pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be encouraged, uh, Lord, that you would uh, continue to transform us by the power of your word, and we just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the main idea here that I'm looking to, to get at, and again, uh, we'll, we'll focus on how the, the, this idea can be brought out from those two very simple words, but our risen Savior offers hope to sinners. 
But the problem is that even as believers who are, are, are followers of Christ, who have had our sin washed away by the blood of Christ, sometimes when we fall into sin, we can therefore fall into also self-pity, and we can react as if we feel that Jesus has given up on us. Now, there are a number of things we can see in this text that I just read for you. Uh, First of all, we can see the devotion of these women to Jesus. If you look verses 1 and 2, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, this anointing of the body of, of uh, the dead was a normal practice among the, among the Jews. It would typically be done prior to the burial. And in fact, John's gospel does tell us that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea actually did this to the body of Jesus prior to placing it in the tomb. So either these women were unaware of that fact, which is certainly possible, uh, or they just wanted to make sure it was done properly. Uh, Certainly, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were being very quick in trying to do this because they were trying to get everything done before the Sabbath. Uh, But either way, their, their action here early on this Sunday morning shows their care for Jesus. However, it also reveals their lack of faith. Despite the fact that Jesus stated multiple times that he would rise from the dead, these women were clearly not expecting that to happen. Now, it's possible that the disciples didn't share this with them, so either it was ignorance or lack of faith, but they certainly were not expecting the body to not be in the tomb. Again, certainly we can say in their defense that uh, none of the 12, or I guess the 11 at this point, uh, were expecting it either. Uh, But the good news is that we know and we can see from this passage that they were absolutely wrong. As they were heading to the tomb, Verse 3 tells us they were wondering how in the world they were going to get the tomb open. The rock was so large, the stone would have been too heavy. But of course, this ended up not being a problem. As they were pondering the possibilities for being able to get this tomb open, verse 4 says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Now, I can only assume that at that time, they were looking at this as just an incredible coincidence, Someone else had reason to open the tomb, and it just happened to be at the very time that they were on their way there to anoint the body. So it was a very fortunate coincidence. So they enter the tomb to do what it is they went there to do, and of course they see something that is a bit startling. Verse 5 says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And of course, that alarm would be very understandable. They're expecting to see a body. They're expecting to see the dead body of Jesus. And instead, they see a man dressed in white uh, that is uh, there before them. And that seems a bit odd, to say the least. So certainly, their startle- startlement can be understood. And this man says to them, do, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Then we come to this verse that, again, I want to focus on here this evening. The verse that contains those two little words that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. The angel at the empty tomb of Jesus told these women that Jesus had risen. And then he told them, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And I think we can look at that verse and say, well, why in the world would the angel need to add and Peter to that sentence? 
I mean, wouldn't Peter have been included if he just said, go and tell his disciples and ended it there? Wasn't Peter, in fact, one of those disciples? I'm pretty sure it wasn't incidental. I'm quite sure it wasn't accidental. And I believe these two little words from the mouth of this angel had a very specific purpose. Think about what happened the last time that Peter saw Jesus before the crucifixion. What had Peter done? Well, first Peter had boasted. He boasted that he would remain with Christ even if absolutely everyone else were to abandon him. And then within a very short, few short hours after making that bold statement, these boasts were proven to be very false. Three times, of course, we see that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. The, the very one whom he swore he would never leave. So I think we can all agree that that was a very low point for our friend Peter. And I also think we can see some things here that should encourage us in our own times of struggle, in our own times of failure as believers. But we need to recognize, first of all, I think, that our failures can't be hidden from Christ's view. Our failures cannot be hidden from Christ's view. We know Peter's denial of Christ did not take Jesus by surprise. He wasn't shocked when it happened. In fact, not only was he not shocked, but he actually told Peter ahead of time that that was what he was going to do. There's a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples back in Matthew chapter 26. And if you want to flip over there, you certainly can do so. In Matthew 26, it starts in verse, 20, uh, excuse me, verse 31. And Jesus, again, is having this conversation with his disciples. And he says to them, you all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He then went on to say, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And notice that Jesus told his disciples here on the very night when he was going to be arrested, betrayed and arrested and put on trial, he told them exactly what was just about to happen. He told them he was going to be struck and that they would all scatter. Of course, he had been speaking to them about his impending death for quite a while, at least, at least three times that we can find in Scripture earlier in the Gospel accounts. Jesus told the disciples very plainly that he was going to be killed. But he also told them, that three days later he was going to rise again. Obviously, they didn't understand at all what he was saying. And of course, Peter just flat out didn't believe it. On one occasion, when Jesus spoke of his impending death and resurrection, Peter actually took him aside and rebuked him, saying, this will never happen to you. And many of you know what Jesus' response to Peter was on that occasion. He rebuked Peter right back and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Now just imagine just that moment right there. Just kind of picture the fact of you're telling Jesus, Listen, that's not going to happen because I've got your back. And Jesus turns around and says, You get behind me, Satan. Just imagine Jesus saying something like that to you. He says, get, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. So the disciples, and Peter especially, just absolutely could not comprehend Jesus willingly walking into suffering and death. They just couldn't wrap their brains around it. No matter how many times Jesus said it, they couldn't imagine that this was the actual plan. So the conversation in Matthew 26 is far from the first time the disciples were hearing this kind of talk. And this time, Jesus is not only stating what's going to happen to him, but he's saying, listen, I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again, this will happen to me. But this time he added on, and guess what? All of you guys are going to abandon me. None of you are going to stick by my side. Peter once again expresses his disbelief and says to Jesus, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I think there's a saying that goes with that, right? Pride goeth before the fall, right? And to that statement, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus' response, are you kidding me right now? Admittedly, that's a paraphrase. What he actually said was, truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, once again, in absolute disbelief, says, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He couldn't even conceive of this ever happening. But, of course, in Luke chapter 22, we see that it does, in fact, happen exactly as Jesus said. And right after Peter denies Jesus for that third time, a rooster, of course, crowed just as Jesus predicted. And then it says in verse 61, right after the rooster crows, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And can you just imagine what's going through Peter's mind at that very moment? You could almost picture, you know, some of you, I know there's a lot of kids that are here tonight, and so a lot of you have experienced this, I'm sure. You know, you've told your kids they can't do a certain thing, and then they're doing that certain thing. You know, they've got their hand in their cookie jar, they're up later than their bedtime, whatever it is, and you walk in the room, and there's that, that deer-in-the-headlights look. I can only, only picture that for a moment Peter had that deer-in-the-headlights look before he just crestfallen, went, and wept. says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And it says, he went and wept bitterly. Just imagine what it must have been like for Peter to look into Jesus's eyes at that moment. How would you feel? He was understandably devastated. If you've ever been confronted with your own sin, if you've ever been caught in in significant sin, I'm sure you understand that feeling. He didn't realize he was even capable of such a thing, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. And as we apply this to ourselves, this is both encouraging as well as maybe a little bit frightening. Just as Jesus knew Peter He also knew each and every one of us and each and every one of our failures before he ever saved us. Now, isn't that an incredible thought? Jesus knew every single failure you would ever make, every single time you would disobey him, every single time you would fail to uphold his law before he ever saved you. And the most incredible thing about that is he saved you anyway. 
When I think about that, it just rocks my brain. I can't wrap my mind around that truth. Later, after his resurrection, Jesus didn't just pretend that, Jesus, excuse me, that Peter's denial didn't happen. I believe he was making a very significant point when he had the angel say those words and Peter. Jesus wasn't just going to sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and uh, let's just not talk about it. He was acknowledging and pointing out Peter's failure with those words. Jesus knows us so much better than we even know ourselves. He knows of every single sinful thought that you have ever thought and ever will think, and he knows the next sinful thought you will think before you think it. He already knows the next time that you're going to fail him. And he knows the next time after that, and the next time after that, and on and on for the rest of your life. But he still loves you anyway. And praise God, our failures cannot separate us from Christ's love. Isn't that an amazing truth? Our failures cannot separate us from Christ's love. He knows every failure we've ever done and still lavishes his love and grace upon us. Listen, we can be honest. Peter blew it pretty big. He blew it pretty big. And I'm not picking on Peter. I realize it could have been me just as easily. This is pretty rough. I mean, just think about it. He, he spent three years with Jesus. He had seen Jesus do incredible miracles, taking a, a boy's lunch and feeding 5,000 people plus. He, he saw lepers healed. He saw the dead be raised. He saw incredible, incredible things happen. Jesus walking on water. He heard the teaching of Jesus, the teaching that was said uh, was, was teaching with authority. He heard the authority of his teaching. He saw his compassion. He saw Jesus, one of only a, a select few, to see Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he saw that same man, that same Lord, arrested, mocked, and later beaten and crucified. So at this point on early Sunday morning, Peter has had a couple of days to reflect on what he did. I can only imagine he was at probably the lowest point he'd ever been at in his entire life. And he had time to reflect on the fact that as his Lord went to his death, the last words that Jesus heard from him was his denial that he even knew him. That had to be eating him up. But Jesus made a point to have the angel mention Peter. Can you imagine, can you just put yourself in Peter's mind for just a moment as he hears this message from these women, uh, these women as they leave and uh, run to him from, the, uh, from the, the tomb? Now, some of you observant types, if you, you know, as I read through the first eight verses there, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, how can you be sure that they even told Peter about it? I mean, back in Mark 16, verse 8, it says, uh, it says, the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that would be a good observation. But while it may seem that they disobeyed Jesus and never passed on this message, that is not actually the case. What that actually means there in verse 8 is that they didn't tell anyone anything until they got to the disciples. They weren't stopping and making conversation on the way. 
We know they did actually pass on the message because of what it says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 9, where it says this. It says, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So you can just picture the scene. The women rush in to find the disciples, and as soon as they find them, they're probably stumbling over one another trying to get the story out. And you've got to think, well, that's an incredible story. Well, how did the disciples respond? Well, it says that these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Well, at least that's how the majority of them responded. But that's not how Peter responded. The very next verse says, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now just imagine what's going through Peter's mind as he's leaving the tomb, seeing the empty tomb himself, the evidence that backs up the story that had just been told him. And he's walking home, he's marveling, his mind is going probably in a thousand different directions. And to be thinking to himself, not only is Jesus alive, which is incredible, of course, in and of itself, but not only was Jesus alive, but he specifically mentioned me. I'm not excluded. He, He mentioned me. Even Peter's incredible failure couldn't save him from the love of Christ. In fact, it was Jesus' love for people like Peter that sent him to the cross to begin with. Because there was a payment that needed to be made for their sin. I mean, we we say it all the time, and it's very true. Forgiveness is a free gift, right? We, We receive salvation as a free gift, but it's not free to God. To God, it was incredibly costly. Think about the fact that As Peter is denying his relationship with Jesus, he's doing that as Jesus is preparing to display his relationship and his love for Peter by dying for his sins. Those two things happening at the same time. And listen, there are certain scripture verses that that we know, the ones we learn early on in our Christian walk, and we hear over and over and over again, and sometimes they can become very rote. But let me tell you, that um, Romans 5.8 should never get old for us. Romans 5.8 should, should resonate in our minds every single day. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still against him, while we were denying him, Christ died for us. Although our failures can't separate us from God's love, To be connected to his love to begin with requires coming to him in repentance and faith. Turning from your sin and trusting in what Christ accomplished on your behalf as he hung on that Roman cross. And if you do that, the Bible says that you will not perish but will have eternal life. Now that doesn't mean that you won't still fail. He certainly knows that I have. But when you do, you can run to Jesus in confession and repentance. We're told in another very well-known verse, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it seems that this is exactly what happened with Peter. 
We can see from a couple of different passages that, that Jesus met privately with Peter. In Luke chapter 24, verse 34, the apostles tell the, the two men from Emmaus, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And of course, Simon being another name for Peter. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, uh, 3-5, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is also Peter, and then to the twelve. This is how we all need to deal with our sin. We, we, we go to him personally. Now, Peter was able to meet with Jesus face to face. We go to him in prayer. But in both cases, we deal with Christ directly and receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. If our sin was publicly known, of course, there may be a need for public confession and repentance and restoration. But first and foremost, we need to go to the Lord and receive his mercy and his forgiveness. And praise God, his mercies are new every morning. God's grace means there's hope for any repentant sinner. And no one here is any exception. No matter how great your sin is, you can never out-sin God's grace. But of course, uh, Paul saw a, a, a potential problem with preaching that message, and uh, the question uh, is asked, and he brings it up as a rhetorical question, should we sin more so grace will increase? And of course, Paul answered the question, may it never be. God's grace is inexhaustible. We can never out God's grace, but we also should never presume upon it. If we truly love him, we're going to be striving with every fiber of our being to be obedient in every aspect of our lives. If we're truly his, our failures will never, ever separate us from his love. And finally, our failures do not exclude us from Christ's service. Our failures do not exclude us from Christ's service. I mean, it's pretty incredible when you consider what Peter did. You know, Peter was so bold. He was so cocky. He was so bold to say, I will never leave you. All these guys, yeah, they'll probably scatter. You're probably right about them. But man, that doesn't apply to me. And only to deny him three times immediately thereafter. But, but it, it, amazing, it's amazing enough that he was forgiven. But, but it's infinitely more incredible to me that he was restored to Jesus' service and became one of the most prominent of the apostles. We don't have a record of the conversation that occurred the first time Jesus appeared to Peter after his resurrection, but we do have a record of another conversation that happened later. And if you would, again, if you have your Bibles open, just flip over to John chapter 21 for a moment. John chapter 21. And in this passage, as you're, you're flipping over there, several of the disciples, again, you're probably familiar with the story, uh, several of the disciples are in a boat fishing, and they see someone on the shore, and then uh, they eventually realize that it's Jesus. And as soon as he realizes, as soon as Peter realizes that's Jesus, he doesn't even wait for the boat to get into shore. He tears off his robe, he dives into the water to get to Jesus. And a bit later, they're having breakfast, and Jesus speaks to Peter. And we see the conversation here in verses 15 to 17. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So what's happening here? Now, some people tend to get hung up. You've probably heard this a lot in messages about all the different types of love in the Bible. Uh, some people get hung up on the fact that, that Jesus uses a different word for love the third time that he asks Peter uh, if he loves him, a different Greek word. But I don't think that's the point at all. I really don't think that's the point that's being made there. I think the focus is on the fact that Jesus asks him three times. The same amount of times that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And that's why Peter is grieved when he asks him the third time. It's not because he used a different word. It's because it's the third time and it brought to mind exactly what he had done. What Jesus is doing is restoring Peter to his service as an apostle. Three times Peter denied him. And Jesus has Peter declare three times that he loves him. And then Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Of course, John then gives us a bit of commentary here and adds this. This he said to show by what kind of death he, meaning Peter, was to glorify God. And after this, Jesus says to him, follow me. And you know, Peter did. Peter followed hard after him from this point on. Peter was the one who preached at the day of Pentecost. God used that sermon. God worked through that sermon to bring 3,000 people into the kingdom. I mean, when you think about it, Peter really could be the poster child for God's absolute transforming grace. God used Peter's failures to continue his sanctification process, to, to further conform him to, to Christ, to continue to build him up and prepare him for the ministry he had for him to do in the future. And, and when you think about it, if you move from, from Peter's appearances in the Gospels and you move into uh, what he wrote in his letters, in the epistles that he wrote in the New Testament, the difference that you find is absolutely striking. We saw Peter's pride, of course, when he, he proclaimed that he would never leave Jesus but later on, he writes this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we all know the story. Peter fell asleep instead of watching uh, and praying with Jesus. But later, he writes, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. When Jesus was going to be arrested, Peter impulsively attacks the servant of the high priest with the sword, cuts off his ear. But later, he says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. But later he wrote, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When we learn from our failures, God is gracious. He can redeem them. He can use what we have learned for his glory. Now again, grace doesn't mean that 
We ignore the need for holiness. We are to be holy. And let's face it, nobody, nobody is ever better off for having sinned. And of course, we know God does give us some qualifications in Scripture for certain offices, deacon and and elder. So there may be times when, uh, because of a particular sin, someone can't be restored to a particular position or office. But even in those cases, in any case, any and every case, we can still be used by God. We're able to share of his grace with other sinners just like us. Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Maybe Peter would argue with him. Maybe, I shouldn't say maybe, I'm sure many of us would give them both a run for their money. But all of us should be able to agree that God has extended absolutely amazing, unbelievable, overwhelming grace towards sinners like us. And so we need to remember the love of Christ that was present in those two little words, and Peter. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for uh, this night that you've given us. I thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. Thank you so much for the overwhelming love that you have given us in Christ, the overwhelming grace that you have given us in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, seek to, uh, whether at home or away, make it our aim to please you, that we would seek to honor you in every aspect of our lives, but understanding that when we fail, and we do fail, that we can run to you in repentance and faith, that we can run to you and embrace you. We can run to you and confess our sin, and you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, help us to honor you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.